This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Body brokering is the business of collecting and selling parts from donated cadavers. It is a little regulated industry that brought investigative journalists from Reuters to Montrose, Colorado, where a funeral home doubles as a body broker business. It is now under FBI investigation. Reuters' John Schiffman joins us from Washington, D.C., and a note that our conversation may contain some graphic descriptions. And, John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Cadavers, or parts of cadavers, can be donated to science, but this is not the same thing as making organ donations. Uh, First off, how do these two types of donations differ? Sure. Well, this is a very important distinction. Um, A lot of people are probably familiar with Donate Life, organ donation, the the box that you tick on your driver's license right. so that if you are in an accident or you die, that your hearts or your lungs um, can be hopefully transplanted to someone who may need it uh, could save a life. Um, that's very important, and we didn't look at that at all. That's completely different. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can donate your body to science. And so so that uh, medical researchers and educators and doctors can train on new techniques. And so that involves heads, arms, legs, torsos, and that's the kind of thing that, that uh, we were looking at. The transplant industry is very, very highly regulated. Um, the uh, non-transplant, the body parts, heads, arms, legs, is not regulated uh, at all in most states. So if I want to give my body to science... It mm-hmm. seems like I could just do that directly to, say, the local university. Uh, who are brokers? Why the heck are there brokers? You can give it to the universities, and there are about 100 programs in the United States to do that. Um, and, but what we looked at is about a range of about three dozen companies. Some are profit, some are nonprofit. Um, but what they do is they take the bodies and then they, to use their euphemism, they harvest them. They, they, uh, uh, dissect them. And this can have, uh, real, you know, important, legitimate uses. Um, uh, if a, if a, say a, uh, uh, dental school or a, um, uh, a surgeon, surgical school is trying to teach a new technique, really what they want is they want six heads or, or five arms, uh, they don't want, they don't need the whole body. Hmm. And what these firms do is they, the way they make money is, is they package, store and ship and send and then help, um, uh, cremate the body parts afterwards. Um, they've sort of created this niche industry here, uh, to, to do this. And a little regulated industry, as you note in your series, The Body Trade. Uh, it's also true that they make body donation, uh, cheaper for people. Is that right? Right. Well, one of the things that we found is is that, uh, you know, anyone who's had anyone uh, who's unfortunately died, a relative or something dies, you know, the funerals are very, can be very expensive. And the average funeral in the United States, I think, costs about $7,000. Um, that would include, say, burial. Uh, but, you know, cremation is, a, is always a cheaper uh, option, and it's an increasingly important one. Um, but that still can cost 500 to to $1,000. And so the way that a lot of these companies get business is that they offer uh, firms, I'm sorry, they offer families, and and we found in Arizona, we were able to get statistics to show that they really target the poor. Uh, They offer a free cremation. If you donate your body, we'll take care of everything. We'll pick up the body, 
we'll 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 cremate it. We'll return the the uh, uh, the remains uh, to you as long as you let us use it um, for uh, uh, for med- You know, let us sell it for medical or um, educational research. The idea being that they would cremate whatever they don't use for research or sell on to another entity. Right. Typically, what happens is is that is is that the organization almost immediately uh, uh, cremates uh, one of the hands or an arm and sends those cremations back to the um, back to the relatives and then they uh, farm out the different body parts uh, the average body is used uh, the goal for some of these companies is to sell six parts per body um, and to and to spread them um, you know spread spread the uh, the bodies across the country to various uh, entities, and then they cremate those. They don't usually send a second set of cremains back. Hmm. Uh, it can also cost money to donate your body directly to a university, say. It's often that they charge you to come out and sort of collect that body. Is that right? Right. Some of the universities will charge um, a few hundred dollars to uh, uh, to pick up a body and uh and so they are in competition then with um, these body bro- these commercial body brokers. And in some states, including Florida and Pennsylvania, we found that um, that you know there's competition, and that in Pennsylvania in particular, they said that the commercial companies were making it harder for the medical schools to get uh, the bodies that they needed for anatomy classes because uh, Pennsylvania had to charge two hundred dollars to come pick up a body. Hmm. Uh, so how did a Montrose funeral home become a focus of your investigation into the body trade? Well, it's interesting. My colleague, uh, Brian Gross, spent some time uh, in Montrose and in the Denver area. Uh, Colorado came to our attention because there are at least, we could find, four um, body brokers, um, which was, there's, there's no national list of these. You know, we, we had to sort of find them. Um, by going to the source of the people that are, are, are buying the body parts um, and, and, and in trading them. And Colorado was, if not number two or number three in terms of body parts, it, it, it was up there, uh, body brokers, sorry. And one of them um, was, was uh, grabbed our attention because Sunset Mesa is a funeral home, um, and it also operates a company called Donor Services, a body broker, from the same building in Montrose. And um, this is unusual, and some ethicists with funeral associations have said, you know, this is a recipe for for potential trouble because you've got potential conflicts of interest here. It's not illegal, though, to have those businesses under one roof in and of itself? No, it's not illegal um, at all. And um, it is, uh, at least under Colorado law, uh, Colorado has among the most um, permissive or, or least regulated uh, uh, series of laws when it comes to funeral homes and um, body brokers is what we found. And we I, understand, found that I understand this sorry, was the only example in the country you found of a body brokerage, if you will, being uh, under the auspices of a funeral home. That's right. That's right. Um, directly. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, it's when talking to the authorities in Colorado, it's, it's much harder to say open a restaurant or a gas station than to uh, open a business in which you sell 
So the FBI is investigating this Montrose operation. Why? I mean, just just because the appearance of it isn't great, you know, isn't a violation of the law. Well, um, after um, after my colleague Brian Groh was out there and interviewing former employees, um, this this drew the atten- ultimately drew the attention of the FBI um, because these employees were troubled by the practices. Um, some of the practices allegedly going on inside the funeral home, um, including um, the alleged um, sale of uh, uh, of gold teeth from some of the, the corpses um, that were extracted from the gold crowns, um, and uh, uh, you know this it's it was the kind of thing that, that that may or may not be illegal, but it certainly is drawing the attention. Also, there's a question of consent. Do the do the people who are donating their bodies know? Uh, I'm sorry that are that are donating their bodies know how they're going to be used, um, uh, and do they know? Uh, you know, is there any indication that people um, who use the funeral homes, they know that the bodies uh, were were properly buried, were properly disposed of? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a series from Reuters called "The Body Trade: Cashing In on the Donated." dead. And um, this is a series that looks at this nationwide, but you called the Montrose segment Add to Cart. Explain that title for us. Sure. Well, one of the more interesting things about donor services, about this this company in Montrose, um, is that when you went to their website, you could, to donate your body to science, you could simply um, go to a series of pull-down menus um, not too different than ordering something on Amazon, and you could fill out a few forms, add, click Add to Cart, add your card, a card number, and and you would um, uh, donate your body. What was unusual about donor services, this this place in Montrose, that was different from all of the other places that we looked at, was that they actually charged people to donate their bodies to science, um, and and that. Um, that was unusual. The, um, the owner said, well, it's a mountainous area and, you know, we need to, to defray um, uh, transportation costs. Um, but that surprised us. Indeed, because that means they're making money on both ends, if you will, from the family. And then again, when they sell the bodies to whatever the, the research organizations are. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so they, they charged, uh, generally they charged $195 uh, plus 300 more if relatives wanted cremated remains back. How lucrative is the body brokering business? Well, it can be very lucrative. We, we found uh, a company in Arizona. We uh, were able to obtain their tax records and found that um, the, uh, a couple in Phoenix earned um, at least $12.5 million in about three years taking donated bodies, dissecting them, and then selling or leasing the parts or holding seminars in which doctors could come and they could uh, train. And as you say, fundamentally, the idea of a broker is not um, bad in and of itself. In other words, in, in many cases, this is an important service that they provide. But, you know, some of the questions you raise in this series are about the lines that are blurred I think intentionally between uh, 
body brokerage and organ donation. In other words, they they sometimes play on some haziness there, um, and that means that families don't have the full picture. Is that right? That's right. And um, you know, in the case of the of the funeral home slash uh, body broker in um, in Montrose. Um, they circulated a brochure that said, you know, be a hero, be an organ donor. And they used the um, Donate Life brand um, uh, uh, on, the, on, their, on their website. And, um, you know, uh, the, the organ donate, we contacted organ donation groups um, to ask them about this. And they said, really, this, this should not have um, this should not have happened. Uh, you know, Donate Life, uh, sorry, uh, Donor Services, the company in Montrose, is not a designated organ procurement organization. Um, and the local donor alliance, which is in um, in Colorado, said that this could be confusing to people. Yeah. Um, so I wonder how the owner of the, the businesses in Montrose responds to some of these allegations. Well, she, um, Megan Hess is the name of the owner. Indeed. And... Um, Ms. Hess um, of both the funeral home and the body broken company, and um, she uh, she told us that she the reason she does this is to help people out and for the good of the world. Um, this is what she told us when we met in person. Um, she stopped responding to our queries uh, and had her and had her lawyer tell us to stop contacting her uh, more recently. Let me say that CPR News as well reached out to this Megan Hess for comment, but she didn't respond. What do you think is the takeaway from this series, John Schiffman, and, and potentially for those who, who wish to donate their bodies to science? Well, I think it's really important that if people want to, like anything else about death planning or life planning, it's important to try to plan ahead. Um, and I also think that it's important, uh, you know, that, that organ donation is, is really important. It saves lives. Um, but I think people should look more closely at uh, uh, donating their bodies to science for research and education. I also think it would be great if the government took a took an interest in this. There's no federal regulation. There's very little state regulation in, in most states. Um, these companies, in most cases, don't need uh, much supervision at all. There's a national association, but it sort of self-polices. And, uh, you know, if you're going to... Uh, thinking about donating your body to science, um, you might want to check with your local uh, state university or local medical school and see if it's possible to do it directly there. I suppose that the fundamental question is, and and I I don't know to what extent you found this, is when body brokers deal with bodies, do they do so respectfully? Um, You know, we found that that some of the companies do, and and they take great care. But we also found um, several companies that use chainsaws, uh, uh, saws from Home Depot that, um, you know, uh, operate in very disrespectful ways. We found this in Phoenix and Las Vegas um, where, where, you know, it's, it's really amateur hour. Um, some of these cases were horrifying. I just spent time uh, in court in Detroit earlier this week. Or last earlier this month and uh, earlier this week, uh, a Detroit body broker was convicted of defrauding customers because he was sending out um, body parts that were infected. He used chainsaws. He kept uh, 
body parts in, in deplorable condition, according to the trial testimony. Um, he also had four fetuses that he kept in his warehouse. Um, and uh, he may be, at this point, the poster child for how body brokers shouldn't, shouldn't uh, operate. Thanks very much for sharing your reporting with us. Thanks for having me. John Schiffman, investigative journalist for Reuters. He's been working on a series about the trade in body parts from human cadavers, and we'll post links to his stories at CPR.org. We'll be right back with The Tunnel That Changed Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A dynamite blast 50 years ago near Dillon signaled the start of the Straight Creek Tunnel Project. Today, we know it as the Eisenhower-Johnson Memorial Tunnels. The Eisenhower came first, then the Johnson Tunnel. They're the highest point in the U.S. interstate system. And to learn more about this engineering marvel, I'm joined by Lisa Schock. She's a senior historian at the Colorado Department of Transportation. And Lisa, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. How did people cross Colorado before the tunnels? First off, I want to hear about life before them. So Colorado in the in the 20s was pretty a very rural place. Um, the state highway system was sort of laid out in the 1920s. And most of those roads were locally maintained. They weren't paved. They weren't improved by today's standards. Um, the main east-west routes were uh, what became U.S. 40 and U.S. U.S. 40 over Berthoud Pass and U.S. 6 over Loveland Pass. And in the wintertime, those were very treacherous. So it's the, there was this concern that the, that the state was really sort of divided during the winter months, that it was hard for people to get from east to west. And so that was sort of the early thinking around, hey, maybe we should build the tunnel through the Continental Divide. Which, as you say, is coming at around the same time the nation is planning for this this new interstate system. Uh, indeed, talk of a major tunnel somewhere on the Continental Divide had been going on for a very long time. But what what pushed this location, this project, uh, over the edge, so to speak? Well, there are a lot of things that pushed it. Um, one of them was that um, there were some champions for the tunnel. One of them was Governor Edwin Johnson, who had been a governor in the 30s, and then he was a senator for 20 years and then came back and was a governor in the 50s. And he was really a champion of transportation and industry and the ski industry and tourism. And he really wanted there to be a tunnel that uh, connected the state. But the interstate highway highway system, as you had mentioned earlier, was another big catalyst. Um, There were actually a number of highway acts, uh, interstate highway acts starting in the 40s when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was in office. And it wasn't until 1956 that that the the Interstate Highway Act was actually had funding associated with it. And and why this location, though? Well, so there were a bunch of locations that were evaluated, um, but this location was on the old US-6 alignment, so there was already some some connection there over Loveland Pass. And there were a bunch of studies that were done to evaluate this location. There were people who wanted 
Berthoud Pass to be the location of the tunnel and other people who thought Loveland Pass would be better. But this one made more sense um, because of where it was located along U.S. 6. Okay. And as you note, uh, the Johnson Tunnel is not named for President Johnson. It is named for that former Colorado governor, Edwin C. Johnson. What were some of the challenges that miners faced when they started boring the tunnel in that chosen location? There were a lot of challenges. First of all, there's the altitude. Uh, the tunnel is at 11,000 feet. Um, another another big concern was the geology itself. Um, the Continental Divide in that location is mostly granite, which is very hard rock. But there was also um, the Loveland Fault. There's a fault zone along there. Oh, gosh. Yeah, don't it, – it's okay. It's, okay. <laughs> don't worry about the tunnel. Um, but in there, there's also some um, concerns with water drainage and water that made some of the, the rock kind of soft. So construction or mining of the tunnel was really challenging because of those things. So when I drive through the tunnels, I, I think about what is beyond like those doors and, you know, just outside of that envelope where my car is. Uh, I understand that that part of what's there is a massive ventilation system. Yeah, because of the altitude um, of the tunnel, they had to build a a huge ventilation system to keep the air circulating through the tunnel. Um, And so that was... That was a kind of a, a whole separate challenge um, to to constructing the tunnel. And up above, you know, where you see that sort of antiseptic um, uh, tiled interior yeah. of the tunnel, there's the, the tunnel heading. And then there, at each end of the tunnel, there's a, a big ventilation system that keeps things, you know, keeps the air um, at, at a much cleaner um condition than it would be if there was no ventilation system. Mm. Uh, Remind me how long the tunnels are. Tunnels are about 1.6 miles long. And um, I was just looking at some fun facts because I don't have those readily available in my head. But my understanding is that the electric bill is $70,000 a month at the tunnel. So there's a lot of... Mm. Keeping um, the lights on is not a cheap endeavor. Keeping the lights on is not cheap. So uh, the people behind the tunnel's construction were pioneers in a sense because nothing like this had ever really been built before. Uh, There was also a social justice pioneer connected to the tunnel. Tell us about Janet. Is it Bonima? It's it's Bonima. Bonima. Okay. Tell me about it. So Janet was uh, in her early 30s. She had was a graduate of CU. She was a pilot. She rode motorcycles. She was on the ski team. All things that in the early 70s were sort of not considered to be something that most women would be interested in. So she was um, um, had applied for a job with um, the Department of Highways in 1970 to be an engineering tech. She actually had a history degree, but she did apply for an engineering tech job and was accepted. And when she showed up for work and they found out she was a woman, they wouldn't allow her to work at the tunnel. Um, apparently, there was a clerical error and her name was – written down as James instead of Janet. Oh, I see. And so um, she was not allowed to work in the tunnel. There's this myth that women working in um, in mines is bad luck and that there could be something catastrophic that could happen if a woman entered uh, a mining uh, situation or a mining tunnel. This, so This was just superstition? It was superstition. And sexism, but, but a for lot sure. Of, yeah. So, so she ended up filing a sexual discrimination lawsuit which was settled and it, and did actually show up for work at the tunnel. And the story is that 60 men walked off the job and would n- refuse to work there because there was a woman in the tunnel based on this old mining myth. Oh, 
She was recently inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, I understand. Yes, she was. So what impact did the tunnels, and again, the, there was the, the one built at a time, yes. and I think that the second tunnel, the Johnson Tunnel, came several years later. What impact did these tunnels have on Colorado, the country? So from a, a transportation perspective, these are sort of the tunnels connected the state. This was one of the things that Governor Love brought up in his uh, speech when they opened the Eisenhower bore in 1973. He said that the, the tunnels would, would connect east and west. So there's that sort of connection within the state. But I also think that the tunnel sort of put Colorado on the map. I mean, initially, the interstate system was supposed to end in Denver. It was not supposed to connect through the mountains to Utah. And there was a lot of political pushing by Edwin C. Johnson and and Senator um, Eugene Milliken to make sure that 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 Western connection through the the mountains uh, for the interstate was completed. So very briefly, I think a, a lot of people associate the tunnels with not just being the gateway to the mountains and skiing, but as an entryway to traffic headaches as well. Yeah. Do you think that planners back then still thought that it would essentially be the major east-west thoroughfare 50 years later, largely as it is today and, and was then? You know, I, I don't. I don't know if planners were thinking about that. I do know that we, the the agency, the Department of Highways and now CDOT, really documented that tunnel like I've never seen anything documented. There are boxes and boxes of photos and plans and drawings um, actually housed at the tunnel. We've had that collection inventoried. My sense is that there was some vision that this would be the biggest project that, that the Department of Highways ever built. And I, And my assumption also is that the planners were thinking – when we build this, this is going to be this is going to be something that can carry through um, and connect the state through the future. And I don't think anybody was thinking that there would be the congestion there is now on mm. that same route. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Lisa Schock, senior historian for CDOT. Construction on the Eisenhower Tunnel began fifty years ago. Your feedback now in loud and clear. Our coverage of the opioid crisis in Colorado recently touched on babies who are born dependent. These babies especially are going through a rough time. They come into the world addicted and they go through all of the same physical withdrawal symptoms that an adult would. So these babies can go from just, you know, maybe yawning quite a bit, being a little bit fussy, a little bit jittery, to the point of having convulsions. They can have a very high-pitched, inconsolable cry. That was a nurse in Pueblo talking about how a local hospital had put out a call for volunteers to come and hold these babies. Well, Susan Calcaterra emailed us to say the nurse, as well as our reporter, we're wrong to refer to the babies as addicted. She writes, these babies are absolutely not born addicted. They are born physically dependent on opioids. As an addiction medicine physician, I tell my pregnant patients that their babies are not addicts. They will likely have some physical dependence, but they will generally do fine after a stay in the neonatal ICU. My goal is for my patients to come back to get the prenatal care they need. If I shame them further by telling them their babies are going to be addicts, that would be wrong and to no one's benefit. 
On to last week's conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper about a possible tax increase for transportation. The interview drew criticism from Denver developer Kyle Zeppelin, who said we focused on highways while failing to mention spending for mass transit and other options. The recent Ryan Warner interview of the governor was very disconcerting just because it was so non-substantive. The questions were about whether to fund transportation or not fund transportation, which is a huge spread. Um, In this case, transportation means funding for highway expansion to the mountains, to I-25, which seems like Hickenlooper's legacy at this point. Um, There hasn't been significant proportional investments in transit, in uh, multimodal. We're just concerned about the priorities, and and, uh, it seemed like a missed opportunity to have a more substantive discussion. In a comment at our website, CPR.org, listener Robert Rumfeld had a different take. Before voters are asked for a tax hike, the State Department of Transportation should undergo a full audit by an independent firm to ensure it's making the best use of its money. We also spoke last week about Colorado cities that allow hunting to manage their exploding deer populations. Colorado Springs is considering bow and arrow hunts. Your general reaction was that quite a lot could go wrong. But we did talk about safety with wildlife manager Frank McGee, who's advising the city. I'm not aware of any accidents. And hunting, even in a general sense, is a very, very safe sport. And then anyone who wants to hunt anywhere is required to take a hunter education class. And then a lot of these communities that are going to allow some kind of an urban hunt will require folks to take an additional class. And then some will also take it a step further and require people to pass some kind of a proficiency test. McGee says these urban hunts have gone on in communities across the country, particularly the East Coast, which has dealt with an abundance of deer in cities far longer than Colorado has. On Facebook, John Christensen testified to that when we lived in northern Virginia near D.C., the state opened special hunts for archery in suburban areas. No people were ever shot by mistake. It's not like rifle hunting where you are a couple of hundred yards from the deer in your scope. Most archery shots are taken less than 50 yards away. We brought on the editor of the Denver Post because the paper recently put up a digital paywall in response to declining ad revenue. Hearing the segment, Amy Brokaw said she felt compelled to comment. I'm concerned with the plight of newspapers and have tried very hard to support the Denver Post. However, I feel the need to point out that as a consumer, the Post has had consistently terrible customer service, missed deliveries, hours spent on hold, problems updating my address when I've moved, unplanned charges deducted from my bank account. In frustration, I recently canceled my subscription, yet I continued to receive the paper for two months. Good for me, bad for them. I have to wonder if they paid a little more attention to their subscribers' experience. Would their paying readership increase? And finally, our chat Tuesday with outdoorsman Micah Meyer about what he says is a lack of LGBT inclusion in the outdoor community drew a series of tweets from D.L. Stewart. Just a note for your LGBTQ guests. Queer people also include women and racial minorities, or, shocker, queer and trans people who are both. DL goes on to say, Your guests' consistent talk about gay men in ads was dismissive of the broad diversity in the queer and trans community. A white gay man does not and cannot represent the whole community. This is a consistent issue. Keep your feedback coming. You can find all the ways to get in touch 
at cprnews.org connect. My God, I'm so bored. If you have a kid in your life and you've heard something like that before, this next story is for you. In Colorado, there's now a one-stop shop for parents, teachers, and teens themselves to find activities tailored to young people's passions, like an outdoor adventure program that takes students hiking, rafting, and backpacking for free. Maggie Daring is a high school educator in Denver, and she has just launched Involve Board. And hi, Maggie. Hi, Ryan. I, Thanks sure for having me. You've this probably awesome. heard young people say, I'm so bored. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. There may be parents listening, though, who think my kid is already overbooked. A little boredom wouldn't hurt. But I, I gather you see a lot of untapped potential in kids, too. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, I think some kids have a full schedule and are involved in a bunch of extracurriculars. And then a lot of students don't know about all the resources that are out there to try to find opportunities and get involved. So Involve Board is a way for them to be connected. Do you see a difference in how many minority students or students from low-income families get involved compared to students from affluent areas? Um, Yeah, I think across the board, you can definitely make that generalization. Um, You know, a lot of times people just don't have access to the resources or, you know, parents don't know about the opportunities that are out there. Um, So Involve Board kind of serves as a platform for all students to have access to these great programs. And these programs uh, include, gosh, everything from math enrichment. That's one I would have passed on as a kid (laughs) to one I would have gone straight for the constitutional speech contest. Uh, There's mural painting at the Young Artist Studio. Uh, Tell me how you got the idea to start Involve Board, first off. Yeah. um, So a couple years ago, I started sending out a weekly list in an email of the opportunities that are out there to the students at my high school. And a few things kind of stemmed from there. Um, Students and parents loved getting it. They were like, this is so wonderful and organized. I had no idea this is out there. And other schools started to hear about it, and I began forwarding it to them. And then, um, you know... Something else that happened was I started to realize that there was this disconnect happening. We had we had three students apply for these engineering programs at Cornell um, that accepted 50 kids from across the country, and all three of them got it. And they're awesome. They're, they deserve it. But statistically speaking, the likelihood of that happening is pretty small. Um, and so I started to realize and, you know, make connections with program directors. And I realized that they have trouble getting the word out about their opportunities to kids and reaching kids. So that happened. And then the third thing was it's time consuming to look for all these programs online. You know, I'm Googling things and going to random blogs and trying to organize the deadlines and when applications are live. And I had wanted one website. I'm like, someone should make a website to have all this stuff in one place. And there wasn't one that was resourceful for our students of Denver. So I decided I would create it. Okay. It's called InvolveBoard. As we've said, you're doing the work so parents don't have to. Uh, Are these all summer programs? Are they during the year? Like, tell us about the nature of the opportunities that kids are often just not aware of and and parents are perhaps not aware of. Yeah. So um, the opportunities are all year. Definitely there's um, an influx over the summer. I'd say that's where a lot of summer or a lot of opportunities happen. Um, But all year long, there are opportunities. Stuff happens on the weekends. There's weekend workshops. Um, There's an awesome one last weekend called Chick Tech. 
So chick, chick tech. Chick I see. Tech, this is yep. probably about getting young women into IT, I'm guessing. Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so they happen all year. But I would definitely say the bulk is during the summer. What do you think is the importance of young people getting involved in things like this? Yeah, great question. And, and that's the whole reason for, for me creating this resource is, um, you know, this is a way for students to find their passions. They can figure out what they like, what they don't like. You know, the schools, they can stay on campuses and figure out what campuses they liked. Um, it helps them prepare for their future, build their resumes, um, and just build those soft skills. They get to meet new people and, um, you know, just develop as human beings. There's so much learning that can take place outside the walls of a classroom. Did you find that there are some programs, activities for young people uh, that were at risk of of closing down or shrinking because they just couldn't find the kids, you know, to, to apply? Yeah, I've definitely, definitely heard of a couple of programs that are in that situation. Um, there was an awesome program at a university in Denver last summer where they it was coding and art mixed together. And they only had nine students sign up. And that sounds like an awesome program. And they they tried to get kids. And, I, you know, I think they're still deciding if they're going to run it again this year. But, you know, it's such a bummer. That would be such a great opportunity for so many students to take advantage of. So this is right now in Denver. Do you have hopes to expand it? I mean, I can imagine parents listening right now in Pueblo and Colorado Springs and Grand Junction thinking, I'm sure there are opportunities in my neck of the woods that are tough to connect with. Yeah, definitely. I think um, and parents and students from across Colorado are welcome to use the site and encouraged to. Um, but because a lot of the programs are overnight. So there's programs at CSU and University of Denver that they stay overnight. So any student can come from anywhere. But um, the bulk of the programs are in Denver. Um, so it is geared towards Denver students. But um, yeah, I would love to expand. And I definitely want to get to a place where involved where it can be scaled to other cities. Got it. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Maggie. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. This was awesome. Maggie Daring founded the new website Involve Board, which connects high school students with extracurricular activities. And there will be a link at CPR.org. The Navajo Nation is on its way to being a big landowner in southern Colorado. It recently bought two ranches in the Wet Mountain Valley west of Pueblo for more than $30 million. The purchase will boost the Navajo beef program. And Navajo Nation President Russell Begay told CPR's Anne-Maria Wad that this location is particularly significant since it's near one of four mountains considered sacred to the Navajo, Blanca Peak. The reason why it's so important is that the Creator placed Navajo people uh, within the four sacred mountains. Everything that we do, uh, whether it's legal signature signing of uh, legislations, uh, contracts, whatnot, it all happens within the four sacred mountains. And each of these mountains provide teachings and guidance to our people. And all of our kids, all of our children, they know about the four sacred mountains. And it's depicted in our flags and um, and the things that we do, things that we produce. It, uh, the, every literature that we have uh, depicts the four sacred mountains and the locations of those. And uh, but we've never, we've never, even though we have two sacred mountains in Colorado, we've never had property in the state of Colorado until now. And do these purchases change anything for people who visit the area? Like Blanca Peak, for example, is one of Colorado's 14ers. There's no restrictions. No, huh? the hunting, the gathering, 
uh, praying, ceremonials, uh, climbing, yeah, anything like that. No, huh? This purchase includes Wolf Springs and Boyer Ranch, and that land does come with bison and cattle. Is the nation going to continue operating the ranches in that way? What a Navajo lifestyle is ranching. I mean, most of our people are ranchers, whether it's cattle, our sheep, goats, and other types of uh, livestock. Um, but we, we've never had bison. I mean, we have stories of bison roaming Navajo Nation land, uh, but we've never owned bison. It's just a good place to expand our ranching and provide opportunities for our ranchers uh, to utilize uh, both Boyer Ranch and Wolf Springs. And what comes next now that these lands are in the hands of the Navajo Nation? So we're going to continue uh, the ranching, the buffaloes. We're going to make it into a retreat place where our people can come to meditate and conduct ceremonies, uh, emphasize health. We really uh, be able to gather uh, herbs on the ranch for our medicine people and uh, and for our young people to come up there and and develop hiking trails, running trails, things like that. Uh, we really are emphasizing healthy living, eating healthy food, raising our own uh, our own uh, food, and so that's why we we're so much into grass fed beef and not grass fed buffalo, and now raising our own. And are there plans to buy any more land in Colorado anytime soon? Uh, we are looking at buying properties, but not land. And that's just to um, uh, to increase our workforce on Navajo, to improve our workforce connected to um, like Fort Lewis College. A lot of Navajos attend Fort Lewis College, and we want to provide amenities for them. And so those types of things. But as far as land, uh, at this moment right now, we don't have uh, plans to buy more, uh, more, more land. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad speaking with Navajo Nation President Russell Begay. Denver artist Genevieve Waller got an unsettling email the other day from a newspaper reporter in Wichita, Kansas, where her latest exhibition was to open this Friday. The email said there were objections from some in that community. And soon after, the gallery canceled the show. Waller is with us now from Wichita, where she actually grew up and where she has been sorting all of this out. Genevieve, welcome to the program. Thank you. Your exhibition there at Newman University, a Catholic school, was called Rainbow in Reverse, Queer Kansas History. It was supposed to highlight LGBTQ people from Kansas who've made big contributions to art and uh, really to history. And one person you intended to feature in it is Gilbert Baker, uh, tell us about Gilbert Baker, first off. Sure. Um, Gilbert Baker is the artist who created the rainbow flag. He was born in Chanute, Kansas. He went to Parsons High School and then later on made it to San Francisco and worked with Harvey Milk, who asked him to create a symbol for the gay rights movement. And so he made the rainbow flag in 1978. And since then, it's gone on to become an international symbol of LGBTQ equality and rights. And he is really not celebrated in Kansas, as far as I know. So he's one of the main figures who was going to feature in my exhibition about you know his life and his contributions. So there have been protests, I guess, largely online. 
uh, ahead of the, the opening of this exhibition at this Catholic school that included an email written by Catholic blogger Gene Hyman. Uh, the Wichita Eagle reported that the subject line read, Newman University sponsors LGBTQ event. Your action is needed. And in the email, Hyman wrote, quote, Why is it necessary to expose students to evil? Why do students need to be encouraged to learn more about a sickness in our society? Uh, what did you think when you first saw those words about your work? Well, um, yeah, I was really disappointed. Um, I I felt like that attitude um, sort of sent the message that LGBTQ Kansans can't be acknowledged, that they, the fact that they exist is controversial and that, yeah, certain segments of the population don't want to know about them existing, want to pretend like they don't exist. So, um, yeah, I really had no expectation that that would be the response to my exhibition, um, just talking about the fact that people who are gay have lived in Kansas since the beginnings of the state. And, yeah, that visibility is still a major issue in Kansas. Now, you, you knew this was a Catholic university going into this. You were very clear in your artist statements uh, when you submitted it and when they accepted it, frankly, that that this is what the scope of the exhibition would be. Did you have any indication before this that the show risked being canceled? Not at all. I had um, applied to have the exhibition about, a, I don't know, six months, a year ago. And when the proposal was accepted, I thought, oh, this is a good sign, this university that's really close to the neighborhood where I grew up in Wichita, um, you know, is open to this. And, you know, with the current Pope, I thought, oh, that makes sense. And um, so, so yeah, I had just been working with the gallery director since last spring to plan the exhibition. Everything had been going as usual as my other exhibitions have gone up until Martin Luther King Day when I heard from the Wichita Eagle reporter. So I, yeah, had no idea. I'll say that Newman University uh, certainly was aware of the protest email, but they say it would be inaccurate to cite it as the reason that the school called off the exhibition. Here's Newman University spokesman Clark Schaefer. We sent out some promotional information about the upcoming exhibit. We got feedback uh, from some of the community who thought it was inappropriate for a university to host an exhibit they thought advocated for a way of life that was counter to the teaching of the Catholic faith. And with us being a Catholic uh, university, that's, you know, certainly something we have to pay attention to. So we got some faculty members and some administrators together and and kind of discussed what they believed we should do. And and a decision was made to cancel the event. So uh, his point is that this was based on more than just the protest email uh, what does it sound like to you that maybe the university got out ahead of itself in its own community? I'm not completely sure. I did hear about a meeting, probably this meeting that you mentioned. And as far as I know, it wasn't a united decision to cancel the show. Um, I, I do feel like there was pressure that because, yeah, there are certain voices in the Catholic community here who are powerful, um, that, you know, they were listened to more than, say, someone like me, an artist. I don't know if that's true, but, um, yeah, I, 
it sounded like they were worried that the exhibition would have something really controversial. I don't know, nudity? I'm not even sure what they were thinking, but they used that as a justification to cancel the show without even asking me what the work would be in the show. Without even knowing that. Uh, would there be nudity? Yeah. No. no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, even if there were, I, I don't think, well, I, I'm not sure what would have happened, but, um, but it's mostly a history exhibition. Um, so I think, yeah, my, my sort of wanting to make LGBT Kansans visible is the issue that they object to. Well, uh, the end of the story is this. Uh, You are in Wichita, Denver artist Genevieve Waller, to install your show at another gallery in town, Harvester Arts, so people uh, will still be able to see the exhibition. Uh, And I suspect all press is good press in some regard in terms of drawing folks to that show. Uh, In uh, just the the final seconds we have, I'll say thanks for being with us and uh, for sharing your story. Thank you, Ryan. Denver artist Genevieve Waller, her show Rainbow in Reverse Queer Kansas History was supposed to open on the campus of a Catholic university in Wichita Friday, but the school canceled the show. And as I just said, another gallery has picked it up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.